And we welcome you to the Tuesday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. I'm really honored to have with me uh, in the studios today two guests, one of them a faculty colleague of mine from Carthage, uh, Bill Miller, who is Associate Provost for uh, New Program Development, Professor of Sociology and Criminal Justice, and more to the point for our conversation today, Co-Director of the Equity and Inclusion Committee at Carthage. And it, uh, I believe it is from that committee that an issue, that an invitation came to our other morning show guest today, Tim Wise, who is one of the most important voices in the country and has been for the last few years when it comes to issues of racism. And uh, Tim Wise has written extensively, spoken extensively uh, on this uh, very, very important topic, increasingly important topic. And uh, he is uh, on the campus of Carthage tonight to speak at 7 o'clock in the Todd Weir Center, uh, presenting a, a, a talk titled Great White Hoax. Challenging Racism and Denial in the Age of Trump. Uh, he has a number of books to his credit, uh, including White Like Me, Reflections on Race from a Privileged Son, Dear White America, Letter to a New Minority. And uh, a few years ago, uh, long after, not long after Barack Obama was elected president, uh, Tim Wise wrote a book called Between Barack and a Hard Place, Racism and White Denial, in the age of Obama. And again, tonight he speaks at Carthage College uh, at 7 o'clock, a presentation that is free and open to the public. Tim Wise, uh, Professor Bill Miller, we welcome both of you to the morning show. Thank you. Thank you. Glad that you're here. Professor Miller, uh, tell us a little bit about the uh, Equity and Inclusion Committee at Carthage and uh, uh, the work that they do and uh, the kind of concerns that uh, prompted it to be created. So the Equity Inclusion Committee has uh, been around for three or four years now, and um, it was really prompted by uh, the same kinds of concerns that prompt uh, the writings of, uh, of Tim Wise, which is to say uh, equity inclusion uh, challenges are faced by all communities, all institutions, including Carthage. And uh, <clears throat> as Carthage has become a, a more diverse place in terms of the student body, um, it's become more and more important uh, to speak to the concerns of the entire community. And so the Equity Inclusion Committee uh, is, built up, uh, is built from staff uh, and faculty uh, to deal with the range of issues that uh, our institution faces. And so we, we deal with all sorts of different things, um, <clears throat> but some of them in particular have to do with uh, uh, equity in the classroom, how do we support um, diverse student populations, um, making sure that people have equal access, and of course, making sure that we have a community where everyone feels included. How much of what you do uh, is focused on what are the problems versus what are the solutions, or is it, are you kind of evenly dividing your focus and energy? Yeah, I think it's, a, it's certainly a little bit of both. Um, we, um, we gather a lot of data. We've supported a number of, of surveys of the student body, of the faculty, uh, on issues of, of diversity and equity and inclusion. We use that data to, to try to make decisions about what the most important obstacles we have to, to, to overcome. Um, and, uh, and, and what was the second part of your, your question? I'm just wondering about kind of how you divide your energy and your time between sorting out what the problems are versus 
seeking solutions. Right. And so, so part of it is the data-driven thing about what the problems are. Part of it is people's experiences, which is really an important part of all of this, right? Uh, folks who are, because we have a, a wide and diverse membership, people have their own experiences. So we have the sort of formal kinds of data that we collect from surveys and institutional data. We have the experiences that people bring uh, to the group. And uh, once we identify whether, you know, the issue comes from an experience or whether it comes from data, uh, then we spend our time trying to figure out uh, what are ways in which we can address some of these things. And in fact, <clears throat> this is one of the ways in which uh, Tim was invited. Uh, one of the priorities for the committee this year was to offer a more training uh, for more groups of people at, at the institution and in the community as well. And one of the places where we thought um, there was an opportunity was for Tim to come and do some training. And so in addition to his public talk this evening, uh, yesterday he did a, he did a training um, for the student affairs uh, group at the college. And today he is going to do a training for academic affairs, which largely includes uh, the faculty. And so that is consistent with one of the issues and priorities that developed for the, for the committee over the, the recent years. Very good. Uh, Tim Wise, before we find out more about you and your background, I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear more about the nature of this training that Professor Miller was just talking about. Well, Bill made it sound a lot more uh, extensive and impressive than it probably is. Um, you know, the thing about trainings, right, is or workshops with faculty or student affairs professionals or whomever it is, is when you have three hours, which is what I had, and I'm at two and a half today with the, with the faculty, there's only so much, realistically, that you can accomplish. But what you can do um, is to try to set a common language and a common framework for doing the work. Because one of the things, and I've, been, I've been on the road 25 years doing this work and um, have been to about 1,500 colleges, and, and the thing that strikes me <clears throat> when I go to places, you know, is that sometimes the, the biggest barrier to moving forward with really constructive policies, practices, and procedures to produce equity is that you have a lot of really well-intended people, but the way they conceptualize the problem um, is different. And so if you conceptualize the problem of racism and racial inequity as an individualized sort of like bad people doing bad things to people, you're going to miss a lot of the more subtle systemic ways that inequality is maintained. I don't think that there are all that many people in the academy that are overt bigots. I'm sure there are some in every school, but that's not what's maintaining divisions of experience and inequity on our campuses. It's really that you have schools that are stuck in ways of doing things that are 30, 40, 50 years old. We have a K-12 educational system that still operates the way it did in the late 19th century for all intent and purpose. So education has not changed to keep up with the cultural needs, the demographic changes, the, the experiential realities of people of color, of working class folks who, you know, 100 years ago would not have been going to college, of, of LGBTQ folks, of people with disabilities, of women as women, particularly in STEM fields and other areas. So I think part of the training is just trying to get us all on the same page. You know, what 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 are we talking about when we talk about racism? Um, what are we taught? How, how does privilege operate subtly within the institution and favor some and disfavor others? If we can get everybody on the same page, then after I leave, right, those conversations can continue with a common language as opposed to 50 people coming in. And we're all sort of talking from or it's like it's like having a choir for a bunch of people that are singing from totally different hymnals. You need to at least sing from the same hymnal, you know, and you might, you might still be off key, but at least you're singing the same song. Right. Um, and I think that's what hopefully, you know, can be accomplished. Right. 
Well, and hopefully we can explore a bit of that uh, even in these few minutes that we have with you on the morning show today. Uh, for those of you just joining us, I'm speaking today with Tim Wise, who is uh, one of the country's most renowned and respected voices when it comes to issues of, of racism and inclusion. With us as well is uh, Dr. William Miller, who is a professor of sociology and criminal justice at Carthage and co-director of the Equity and Inclusion Committee, uh, who invited uh, Tim Wise to come to the campus of Carthage. He speaks tonight uh, uh, a presentation titled Great White Hoax, Challenging Racism and Denial uh, in the Age of Trump. Tim Wise, uh, I think it would be interesting for our listeners to find out a little bit about where you come from and at what point in your life uh, some of these issues became really important to you. For instance, growing up, I mean, as a junior high and high school student, were you someone who was already thinking about uh, things like racism and your own sense of white privilege, or did that come later? Um, I think it's a process. I think there were these little moments of awakening that go back that far. Yeah, I mean, I was... I was uh, educated. My first educational experience was a preschool program uh, when I was four or whatever you are when you go to preschool. And it was at Tennessee State University, which is a historically black college. So I was in a early childhood ed program at Tennessee State. My mom made that decision very consciously to send me there because um, I was going to be going into schools that were had really only been integrated fully for maybe a couple of years by the time I started. We started busing in Nashville, Tennessee in 1971. I was going to start first grade in 74. Mm. And my mom, I think, had a consciousness that she wanted me to have some experience of, of being not the norm all the time, you know, not 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 always just being around people like me and being used to being maybe not the norm. Because I was going to be in schools that were about 40% black, so it was going to be a very multiracial setting, which is something she'd never had the benefit of and my father had never had the benefit of, but she wanted me to. And um, so I think going to Tennessee State you know, at an early age, did some things. One of the things it did was it socialized me in a non-dominant environment. So I got used to not always being the taken for granted norm. Second thing it did was it meant that when I got into first grade, second grade, third grade, fifth, 10th, whatever, if the black kids were being treated differently, and they were by teachers, they were being disciplined more harshly, even though we all acted up and broke the same rules, they were being tracked into the remedial level track, even when they were just as bright. And those of us who were white, even when we weren't very good students, usually stayed in the honors and the advanced track. Um, Because I had been in a black educational environment and because my earliest friends had all been black kids, I'm going to notice that, right? Like the other white kids aren't because they don't know any black people. They don't hang out with black people. They didn't, you know. So to them, white kids on that side of the room, black kids on that side of the room is just like, well, that's like my neighborhood. But for me, coming out of Tennessee State, that was sort of weird, and I didn't know what it was. It's not like I went home the first day of first grade and was like, Mom, you're not going to believe the institutional white supremacy at Burton Elementary School. <laughs> I mean, I was five years old, but but <clears throat> it certainly stuck in the back of my mind, right? There's this consciousness that something is going on, and I don't know what it is, but it's separating me from my friends, right? And so I'm experiencing on a very personal level. Now, I don't know what to do with that, and I don't know how to interpret that. And the schools then, and I think probably now, don't give enough space for people to process that experience. So a lot of it gets sort of buried, you know? And um, I think there was a period of time when I definitely buried it. You know, if there was overt racism, I would notice it. I played ball on a a mostly black baseball team, and we, uh, we went out to a more rural area outside of Nashville when we were like, oh, I was about 11, I guess. And, uh, showed up for a scrimmage and I guess they didn't know that we were going to be mostly black and they, they literally would not play us. And as we were leaving, they were throwing rocks at our car. I mean, you know, wow. it's 1980. So, I mean, this, you know, so, I mean, little things like that definitely will shape your experience, but you still don't really get it yet. You're still a little young. And so I went, you know, I graduated high school. I was certainly thinking about political issues, 
but I had sort of moved away from thinking about race. I was sort of focused on other stuff. I, I went to college really for international relations within poli sci as a sort of concentration. And I got to Tulane in New Orleans and and being in that environment, you know, being in a, in a black city culturally, demographically in every other way, but in a very white plantation within the middle of that city, it was very stark. And it was very much it brought back a lot of stuff that I knew but had probably buried in a way that for a lot of the white kids at Tulane, it wouldn't like they were from the North Shore of Chicago. They, you know, it didn't know that they, they hadn't been in the same environment that I was. They were from Boston. They were from Long Island. They were from or they were from white New Orleans, but they didn't really hang out with black folks in New Orleans. So for me, it was very jarring to see the level of inequity and division. And that's when I really started, I guess, processing it more. So I had some nuggets of it from my youth, for sure, and the way that my family raised me. But it was really being there, seeing that level of division, taking me back to the stuff that I guess I had internalized much earlier. Hmm. Explain to our listeners the first activism work that you did in the 1980s. Uh, the first thing I did of any real substance. I mean, I had done some some stuff around U.S. intervention in Central America and some other things. But the, the first thing that I that I did really was anti-apartheid work. So, you know, in the 80s, most of the campus activism in America was focused on uh, investments in South Africa. It was the last uh, decade or so of, of the apartheid government in South Africa. And, um, of course, there was a large sanctions and divestment movement at the, at the policy level, Congress, Senate, et cetera. Um, but also institutions like universities were, were, you know, selling off their stock in companies that were still bolstering white minority rule in, in South Africa. And Tulane was a little late to the game. A lot of those schools had started that in like 82, 83, 84, and even earlier. I think, I think Barack Obama, when he was at Occidental, did some anti-apartheid work in 1979 or 80. So it had been going on for a minute. But we got into it a little late, 1988, um, 87, 88 uh, at Tulane. We... Uh, uh, Primarily what happened was the university had offered an honorary degree to Archbishop Tutu, who, of course, won the Nobel Prize in 84, mm -hmm. Archbishop of Cape Town. And he, uh, we thought it was a bit hypocritical to, you know, give a, a honorary doctorate to a guy that you're oppressing or helping to oppress by way of your investments. And so we sent Tutu a packet of information on our investments. We didn't have a lot. They wouldn't tell us. Tulane wouldn't tell us which companies they were still invested in, but they were willing to tell us there were 25 uh, in the portfolio that were still invested in South Africa. They just wouldn't name them. Wow. Um, so, but the fact that we knew there were 25 and we could sort of guess, we could venture a guess based on the corporate connections that Tulane has to the oil and gas industry. We sort of figured we knew who was in there, but you know, we didn't have proof. Um, we sent the information to Tutu. He boycotted Tulane, turned down the doctorate. It, wow. made, it made huge like national, international news. He then announced uh, that he was going to send back every doctorate that he'd ever received from any college that didn't divest within a year. So it was it was a big news story. And Ooh. it was one of those things that, you know, made made me realize. And I think a lot of other people realize the power of 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 protest or potential of protest. Now, having said that, you know, we didn't get divestment. I mean, Tulane actually held out longer than apartheid. Apartheid fell in 94. Tulane still hadn't divested. So that tells you a lot. <laughs> wow. But but we did raise a lot of consciousness around the issue. We did raise a lot of interesting discussions around ethical investment and what it can look like um, that are still going on in this country right now around fossil fuel uh, use, around around Palestine. There are a lot of other divestment movements that are trying to get people to think of ethical investment policies and practices, which I think is great. Um, and so that was the first thing. But then, you know, immediately after college, um, uh, was when David Duke, uh, former Klan leader, white supremacist, modern Nazi, um, was running for the U.S. Senate. He actually become a state lawmaker, state legislator in 1989, early 89. 
1989, late 89, early 90. He announced he's running for the Senate, ran for Senate in 91. He ran for governor. I was the associate director of the, the main organization that was formed for the purpose of defeating him. So that was the real first high-profile, really serious out in the community work that I was doing in 90 and 91. And it was it was very um, transformative for me because, you know, Duke won six out of 10 white votes in that Senate race. And it was not because people didn't know he was a Nazi. Everybody knew. Hmm. But six out of 10 white folks said, well, it's all right. I think I'm going to vote for him anyway. Um, and that was that moment where those of us who were white realized, wow, you know, um, we sort of have some work to do with our people because of six out of 10. I know six out of 10 white people are not Nazis. I know that 607,000 in the case of the Senate race, 672,000 in the case of the governor's race, white people are not Nazis. So but 672,000 white people are willing to vote for a guy who is and who they know is. What does that mean? You know, and that was the, the question I think we all asked and have been asking ever since. Right. One of the questions that I wanted to ask you uh as I reflect upon it, I realize it's kind of a ridiculous question. Uh, it was going to be something along the lines of how has racism changed over the last quarter century that you've been doing this kind of work? And at least the way that that question is framed is, is as I said, kind of ridiculous because there's a lot tied up in the word racism. And in sure. particular, uh, you've already touched on this. They're, they're really kind of at least at least two different distinct brands of racism. Yeah. Uh, the one, the kind of s- someone who hates black people who maybe has a yeah. white uh, white hood hanging in their closet yeah. and has you know done terrible things consciously to blacks and other minorities right. out of a hat- sense of hatred and superiority and so on. Mm-hmm. And then there is this other kind of racism that <clears throat> isn't directly about any of that at all and right. yet does untold harm. Uh, a more systemic, subtle kind of racism that probably in some ways is even trickier to address. Uh, Given the complexity of what racism is, um, in a real general way, uh, what kind of change have you seen over the many years that you have been doing this work? Is it becoming, for instance, more overt, less overt, more widespread, more localized? What general things have you seen? Well, I think that... Really, it's more things change, the more they stay the same kind of thing. You know, the the reality is things haven't changed all that much in terms of how racism manifests. I think historically, if you look at the 400 years of time going back to the, to the colonial period uh, and the introduction of the first Africans as indentured servants later to be enslaved uh, in the colonies, you realize that certain things just repeat and are common. Yeah, there's the overt hatred piece, but really what there is more is sort of what we see now politically, which is, you know, rich white guys telling not rich white people that their enemies are black and brown as a way to divide. And that's been that's been the policy since the colonial period. It's what worked during the Civil War. You know, it's what divided the labor union movement. It works with anti-immigration rhetoric uh, today. So there's some stuff that's just 400. It's like, play, you know, the first play in the playbook of American politics. And people just keep going back to that one. They don't even read 10 plays into the playbook. Just, just do that one, you know. Because it works. Um, so that has been a constant. Now, obviously, sort of overt racism was diminishing for quite a while, I think. There's all that conversation, Ian Haney-Lopez and other scholars who talk about dog whistle politics, right? This this way that after a while, politicians learn you're not supposed to use a bullhorn and announce your, your bigotry, right? And so Lee Atwater famously... Uh, Republican conservative political consultant who worked with Reagan and all the other, you know, sort of big name right wingers um, in 1981. He's caught on tape. You can Google this and listen to the recording. He's, he's caught saying, 
you know, in 1955, you can say, and then he says the N-word over and over again. And he says, but by 1968, you can't use that word. It gets you in trouble. So now you start talking about taxes and states' rights and busing and all these abstract things. And pretty soon you're getting so abstract that it sounds like you're just talking about the economy, but everything you're really talking about hurts black people more, right? And so mm-hmm. he, he's admitting that's what he did. I mean, it wasn't like somebody else does. It's like, well, this is what we do. We do it all the time. Um, and that was sort of the normative politic for a while, right, was was plausible deniability. You know, let's talk about busing, but not because we don't like black people in our kids' schools, just because it's just such a burden for some people and not others. And, it's just, you know, or, or let's talk about welfare, but uh, it's not oh, it's not about race. It's just about, you know, these folks need to get off their, their butt and get a job. And, you know, it's just about that or it's about their dignity, you know, and this saps their dignity. So trying to make it like it was concern for poor people. But really it was about stereotypes, about lazy folks, quote unquote, who were perceived usually wrongly as black or brown. And um, that was the politic for a while. Now what I think we're seeing, and this is certainly problematic and distressing, is there is a return to a much more raw, in-your-face kind of racism or racial resentment politic where the dog whistle dog whistles are not what Donald Trump does I mean he doesn't he doesn't usually play the subtleties very well right um, he'll just straight up tell you like these people are bad people they're rapists they're drug dealers they're murderers oh some of them are good people or you know these countries are asshole countries or whatever and you know it's like at some point that's the stuff you're not supposed to say the quiet part out loud right and and yet he does and it hasn't hurt him very much which is you know, what it tells you is there's an underlying current of racial resentment and hostility that never went away. Hmm. The dog whistling just allowed us to sublimate it. And um, so we got to grapple with that. I think I think that the other thing that has remained somewhat constant is the inability of people to distinguish between the individual and the systemic. The systemic piece, we think of systemic racism, I think, as... Um, again, overt things. So we think of it as segregation, or we think of it as lynching, or we think of it as enslavement. And all of those things are systemic racism. But you know what else is systemic racism is the old boys network for jobs, right? Um, or standardized testing in unstandardized schools with unstandardized kids who we know, where we know the impact of that is going to be to hurt some and help others. And it's going to have a racial cast to who is helped and who is hurt. Um, old boys networks don't seem like racism because, oh, it's just helping your friend or no, I know somebody would be great for that job, but who we tend to know and who we tend to recommend tend to be folks that are a lot like us. And so even if there's no bigotry, no intentional racism, no intentional sexism, no intentional classism, we end up perpetuating these inequities. So part of this is, is understanding how um, policies, practices, and procedures operate with or without intentionality and with or without bigotry. And that's hard. And I think that's always been hard for people to get their head around. Um, and I think that is still the challenge, you know. In uh, in the summary of one of your books, uh, I think uh, you were quoted as talking about a system of entrenched privilege, which I right. think is an interesting uh, turn of phrase. And uh, and it's interesting how when you think about the word entrenched, right. things can be entrenched in different ways. Sometimes we really yeah. consciously entrench something because we don't want it to move. And in other cases, something just gets entrenched just over time. Right. But... Uh, how do you see that process of entrenchment working most often, especially now? Well, I mean, look, if you have if you have hundreds of years of certain people being favored and others being disfavored on the basis of a category like skin color, by definition, there's going to be a sedimentation um, of of privilege and its opposite in the society. There's no way that you can have decades after decade after decade, generation after generation of inequality and not have that become entrenched or sedimented. Um, uh, 
it's you know inertia isn't just a physical property you know it's a socioeconomic property the second law of thermodynamics applies equally well to sociology and, and the society as a whole uh, objects in motion tend to remain in motion so if certain people have had advantages um, they're going to continue to have them. If I have a three-lap head start in an eight-lap race, I'm going to probably hit the finish line first. If I don't, I have a problem. I'm not a very good runner. Somebody starts three laps behind me, finishes two laps behind me, they're a faster runner. But this society says, nah, but you didn't cross the tape fast enough, so you're not getting the job. That person is better than you. Yeah, but they had a head start, so are they really better? Or, you know, that person had a higher test score than you. Yeah, but they had access to some stuff you didn't, so are you really going to reward them for that? You know, this is the problem is that we... We have this entrenched way of looking at, in those two examples, looking at what merit is, right? And mm. so and so there's this idea that merit looks like this, qualifications look like this. Well, maybe. And in, in a society where everybody had had equal access to obtain those credentials, that would probably be very fair. But in a society where we haven't, to do that is just a way to maintain and perpetuate inequity generation after generation after generation. And to me, that's what we don't think of. We don't think of that as entrenched privilege. We think of it as, but I worked really hard for what I have. Well, you know, most people work pretty hard because in a competitive society, if you don't, you sort of drown, you know. But but the fact that you worked hard doesn't, I mean, my great-grandfather, as, as an example, I have family that go back to the 1600s, and then I've got uh, my father's father's side, early 1900s. My great-grandfather comes from Russia in the early 1900s, and, um, you know, Jewish immigrant from, from Russia, modern-day Belarus, from Minsk, and, um, and he certainly catches hell as a Jew and as a Yiddish-speaking immigrant who doesn't know the customs and the language. But you know what? He also was able to get jobs in New York City uh, within the first week or so of being in the United States that had been off limits to black people for about 25 years by the time he got here. They'd mm. been run out of certain jobs. Um, he was also able to come as a European immigrant and catch hell because he was from Europe, because there were exclusion laws at that very moment that had been imposed against Asian folks, against anyone who wasn't from Europe. So even though he came and caught hell, it was a privilege for him to even get off the boat and catch hell. And this is a guy who came, I mean, the first time he came, he literally came twice. He, he came into New York, into the harbor, about 10 days after uh, William McKinley had been shot. Of course, he mm. would ultimately die. He'd linger for about two weeks after Leon Shalgus assassinates him. Um, and it just so happens, Leon Shalgus, the assassin, his family was from Minsk. So they literally turned my great-grandfather's boat around in 1901 wow. and sent everybody back. So this is a guy that had a hard time getting here, and he, it took him six more years to come back. But you know what? There was still privilege in his ability to come back and then to be here and to get jobs that were off limits to black folks and to work his way up. That doesn't take away from the fact that he worked 18 hours a day, like, you know, his typical hardworking immigrant story. But but his ability to be here and work those 18 hours a day was still a function of something that wasn't just about him. And part of it is just being able to own that piece. It's not about diminishing people's hard work and effort. It's about saying some people's hard work Ha, is met with an opportunity structure and other people's is not, at least not in the same way. I want to uh, have you take apart uh, the, those words white privilege for a moment because, uh, and I want to remind people, you, you wrote a book, maybe <clears throat> one of your first books called White Like Me, Reflections on Race from a Privileged Son, right. you being the privileged son. And of course, I think you and I and Professor Miller uh, have some sense of the white privilege that we have enjoyed. Mm -hmm. um, do you worry, though, about that turn of phrase when it comes to uh, a poor white living in a trailer park in, in rural Kentucky, mm -hmm. hearing that phrase bandied about white privilege sure. and feeling like, well, where's my white privilege? Right. Where, uh, 
do, do we have to be careful about the way we use that term and the way uh, we we fold it into these kind of conversations? Right. Well, it's certainly not a perfect term, just like no term is, and obviously it's open to misinterpretation. And, um, you know, I know there are some folks who've started to sort of talk about it more as advantage versus privilege, because privilege is a particularly triggering word. We tend to hear it and we think about money. Yeah. And most of us didn't come from money, right? And so when you hear the word privilege, you say, what are you talking about? I wasn't born with a silver spoon. Well, neither was I. I mean, my book, White Like Me, is not about my gilded life, you know, and, and, <laughs> and, and having had, I mean, I'd lived in an 840 square foot apartment from the time I was three days old to the day I walked out the door to go to college. My father was a raging alcoholic and drug addict um, and, uh, you know, uh, attempted suicide when I was 16 years old. So it's not like, you know, my life was not was not um, precious and and uh, protected from chaos. We all go through stuff. Right. But um, but there were things about being white. It really, to me, white privilege is just the flip side of discrimination against people of color. Right. If other people are the targets of racial profiling and I'm not, then I have a privilege or an advantage. It's not about saying your life is perfect. You know, you think about even rich people, right, who I think most folks would agree have privilege because they have lots of money. Sometimes they still have heart attacks. They still have horrible lives. They don't get along with their kids. They lose their jobs unexpectedly. They end up with cancer. Like just because you have class privilege doesn't mean you don't have challenges. And mm. so it's about realizing we all, I think, and not just white folks, we all have certain types of privilege. Even the person that you mentioned in Appalachia, right, who, of course, this is, I always joke about, like, whenever we talk about white privilege, suddenly every white person is from Appalachia. Yeah, right? Right. Like, so, suddenly we all are like that coal miner's daughter. We're all, we're all you know, Loretta Lynn or whatever. And, and uh, um, But the truth of the matter is that even that person, so you think about the, the white person in Appalachia. All right, well, let's think about how we discuss that person. Yeah, there's a lot of ways in which we denigrate those folks who live in trailer parks, and that's classism, and, and certainly mm -hmm. that person doesn't have class privilege. But you know what they do have? They do get the sympathy of the nation right now around the opioid crisis. So, for instance, these are communities that are being racked and ravaged by opiates. We know black folks were being racked and ravaged by opiates in the 70s and the heroin epidemic in the 80s and early 90s with the crack epidemic. And the reaction of this country was lock them up throw away the key, war on drugs, blah, blah, blah. Now you got white folks who are losing their sons and daughters to opiates, and we're all wondering where's the rehab and where's the treatment. Well, there's a reason you don't have that. It's because you spent all your money on jails 30 years ago or you wanted to lock everybody away. You didn't believe in treatment because you said that drug use was a moral failing. So, again, we're more sympathetic even to those folks. Now, I'm not saying that means their lives are great. They're still struggling, and we should do something about that. But just because you've got folks who are struggling who seem to be an exception to the rule doesn't mean the rule doesn't stand. It's like, you know, if I say to you, smoking causes cancer. Well, there's no argument about that. Like, literally, there's no scientific debate about it. It is, correlate, it is correlated with uh, cancer, and it is causal in many individual cases. But you can't then respond to my scientific claim about the reality that smoking causes cancer with a rebuttal that says, yeah, but I have an Aunt Polly and she's 97 years old and she's been smoking <laughs> for 60 years and doesn't even cough. That's not a rebuttal to a larger sociological truth. Like you can get shot in the head and not die. That doesn't mean, however, that getting shot in the head won't kill you. It usually will. And I don't recommend trying to test it for the sake of social science, right? So, so there are always exceptions to rules, but... The, the, the rule stands as a social reality. People in, you know, even even white poor folks have the ability to not be perceived as poor, to go out, get a, potentially get a job as long as they, you know, develop some communication skills and they clean up and they, you know, but pe there are people of color who, in fact, are not poor 
who in fact don't come from that background who are still perceived that way perceived as though they're going to rip off the store you know stop by police because they assume they're drug dealers if they're driving a nice car so um so even there there's a certain degree of privilege and i just want everyone to think about how privilege operates for everyone there, there are people of color who may not have privilege on the basis of that but if they're men they may have male privilege if they're straight they have straight privilege if they're able-bodied we all have some area where we get to be oblivious to the reality that other people experience so it's not about guilting white people there are white people who face sexism because they're women they're white people who face homophobia because they're lgbtq or transphobia there are uh, white folks who face classism but none of that erases. I faced a class system that I was very much not on the top of, but I still was perceived as smart by teachers. I still was given a free pass by cops. Um, as a Jew, I caught hell in the schools in Nashville, Tennessee. I had teachers that would just pop their heads into the classroom to let me know that I was going to go to hell because like, like I'd forgotten since Tuesday last when they told me the first time. And obviously when you're experiencing that, that's a form of mistreatment. I didn't have privilege as a Christian because I wasn't a Christian, but the fact that I caught hell from teachers, they still kept me in the honors program. You know, mm. They still kept me in the AP. It wasn't like, hey, Jew boy, you're going to go to the remedial class. No, you're going to go to hell, but you're going to be in AP English. You know, It's like, so you're still privileged even as you're harmed in other areas. And that's probably true for most of us. And I just think, you know, it's easy for us to get stuck in the place where we got hurt, but not talk about the place where we benefited. And we need to be able to do both at the same time. We're talking with Tim Wise, who uh, is speaking at Carthage tonight at seven o'clock in the Todd Weir Center, giving a talk titled Great White Hoax, Challenging Racism and Denial in the Age of Trump. So, Let's tackle a couple of really big questions uh, in our in our closing minutes. We've not yet really talked about denial. Right. Uh, it seems to me that denial can probably operate in at least a couple of different ways, sometimes kind of an unconscious sort of innocent denial maybe, and then in other times it's a very self-serving, highly conscious kind of denial. How do you tend to think about denial and how do you want us to kind of unpack that complicated term? I think both of those, both the sort of uh, conscious volitional denial, which is self-interested and the kind that really is just about ignorance and not knowing, they're both in play. Um, you know, I, I talk to a lot of young people, obviously speaking on college and high school campuses, and I would say for most of them, it's more of the more innocent and ignorant kind. They, they really haven't been exposed to systemic thinking. In most high schools around the country, you're not going to have sociology classes where you talk about dynamics of power and things of that nature. Um, and most parents aren't equipped to have taught their kids that stuff. So I, I, when it comes to like 18, 19, 20-year-olds, I tend to cut a little bit more slack about, about where they're at in their process. Um, I do think as we get older, though, it becomes a little more volitional and it's a little more self-interested to where, uh, not always consciously so, but at least at a subconscious level, there's a reason we don't want to acknowledge uh, racism. There's, a, there's, a, there's an, a reason that we don't want to acknowledge ongoing inequality because, first off, most people are good people. I really believe that. And I think if you're a good person and you realize there's horrible injustice, your impulse is to try to do something about it. The problem is that takes a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of effort, and people have busy lives, right? And so if you tell me that there's this horrible injustice and I feel compelled morally to do something, it's like, but I gotta get the kids to school and I work 45 hours a week and oh God, and I don't even have time to sleep and now you want me to, you know, and then people find reasons not to do the work because now you're, as James Baldwin said, it puts white people on the hook and we don't wanna be on the hook. Hmm. So it's easier to act like it's not happening. Um, the second thing is, you know, historically, just to give some context for this denial and why I call it that, 
if you go back, you know, I think one of the things most anybody who's hearing this can can agree, regardless of your politics right now and regardless of of what you think about the existence or non-existence of racism in, in 2020, um, I think we can all probably agree that if you go back to the early 60s, before Civil Rights Act, before Voting Rights Act, before the Fair Housing Act, things were pretty unequal. I think we can all pretty much agree on that. Um, my guess is the Klan would even agree with that. They'd be happy with it. You know, they'd, right. Yeah, it was unequal by God, and we liked it that way. No one is in denial that that was the case. What's interesting is if you go back and you look at the Gallup poll that was done in 1963, at a time when the civil rights movement was literally at its zenith, that's the year of the March on Washington. Um, it's the year of the Birmingham Children's Campaign. Um, and you look at what white folks said when Gallup asked this very simple question in retrospect, incredibly deceptively simple, which is, do you think blacks are treated equally in your community in employment, education and housing? This is an easy question. This is, you know, in retrospect, with more than a half century in the rearview mirror, everybody's going to say, of course, they're not treated equally at that time. But in 1963, when the present was the when it was the present, not the past. Two out of three white folks asked that question, looked at the Gallup pollster and said, yeah, I think they're treated equally. In 1962, they asked a similar question just about schooling. They said, do you think black children have as good a chance to get a good education as white children? Now, come on. It's eight years after Brown v. Board, long before any school system had really moved to desegregate with any, quote unquote, deliberate speed, as the court told them to. The answer is no, they're not. They don't have as good a chance. But in 1962, 85 out of 100 white people said, yeah, yeah, I think I think they do. So what does that mean? Like these were otherwise functional human beings. These were people who remembered to pay their bills, remembered to feed the dog, remembered to clean the cat pan. You know, they could walk and chew gum at the same time. These are functional, upright standing homo sapiens. And they can't. They're not stupid. They're They're not not stupid. But they can look around and they cannot see what's right in front of them. How is that? Well, are they horrible people? No, I don't think they were horrible people. I think they just had the luxury of not knowing the truth, mm-hmm. right? And that's privilege. That is the, the, the denial is a form of privilege and a form of racism because it's me saying to you, what you're saying is real is not real. I know better than you, even though it's your life. That's what we were basically saying was, why are all these people protesting? Why Why is he? Why is that Martin Luther King guy talking about his dream? Why are you dreaming? Why don't you just... Get, get to work. Like, everything's good in America, you know? And so if we thought that then, I mean, if there had been modern polling in 1930, I'm sure white folks would have been like, no, things are pretty good, you know? And, and in the 1890s, I know there were Southern newspapers in the part of the world that I'm from that where you had editors that would write things. Here we are at the nadir of race relations and, and you know, the reinstitutionalization of virtual enslavement in the, in the latter part of the 19th century. And you've got Southern editors writing things like, well, we get along just fine with our with our, you know, they'd say colored folk. We get along just fine with them down here if you, if you Yankees would just leave us alone. You know, it's like, well, but do you really? Like, or you go back to the 1850s and you got Samuel Cartwright, who was a well-respected physician of his period, saying that uh, enslavement was a benign institution and any slave that ran away must have mental illness. He actually labeled it, called it drapedomania, was the name of the illness. Like, because you got to be crazy to run away from slavery. Why would you do that? Well, so we've always rationalized. We've always denied. Even even at times that you look back now and you're like, nobody would deny it was wrong. Well, yeah, but they did. They would right? find a way. They will find a way. And so part of that is the is the human impulse to not want to look at the ugly, which I get. You know, it, it is hard. I mean, and, and the good news in this, if there is any, is that um, it means we're not sociopaths. Like if we were sociopaths, we would just look at the ugly and be like, cool, somebody's in pain. I like pain. I'm a sociopath. The good news is we're mostly not. We're mostly good people. But the problem is good people sometimes don't want to look at the 
at the pain because then they're on the hook to do something about it. And I think that what we've got to do is get to that point where we see other people's pain as fundamentally connected to our own pain. You know, the reason we're having this opioid crisis right now is precisely because we did not take seriously prior drug epidemics when they were only affecting certain communities and we decided to lock people away. The reason that the economy melted down, particularly around the housing market in 09, was because for years we had let banks and other lenders you know, engage in predatory lending, roping people into bad loans, mostly people of color. By the time we got to 07, 08, 09, that had spread to the suburbs. It had spread to small towns. Why? Because nobody wanted to regulate it because it's just those people over there that are being hurt, eh, they should read the fine print on the loan. Well, okay, now the whole economy's tanking because you didn't stop these predators from going in and screwing over black and brown folks. Now they're screwing over your grandma, you know? So it's like, at some point, we're going to have to realize that all that anxiety and all that pain that we're experiencing is a direct outgrowth of the pain and the insecurity that other people have been experiencing if we're ever going to break through that denial. You mentioned the uh, the name of President Trump in the title of your talk. We'll talk about him in a moment. Let's first talk about his predecessor, President mm-hmm. Obama. And you wrote a book not long after President Obama was first elected in which you yeah. expressed some concern uh, in the face of what probably a lot of people were saying here here's at last the end of racism yeah. a black man is is our is our is our new president mm-hmm. and of course you you painted a, a different picture of that I suspect in retrospect uh, given where we are right now uh, you probably have other concerns to share about mm-hmm. in a sense what the election of President Obama did to racism in this country it, it didn't end it at all yeah. what, what do you think the election of Barack Obama actually what what was its uh, most important effect on the whole matter of racism? Well, I think it was it was a combination of factors. It wasn't just his election. You know, um, there certainly was a perception. I mean, the day after, I remember being in the Detroit airport the day after the election in 08. And it was so funny, like white folks, and I'm talking about white liberals now, white people that had voted for Obama, I, I would assume, who really thought like this was the end of racism. They're going up hugging black people they didn't know. Like I was just seeing white women just run up to black people and hug them as if to suggest that like all black people knew Barack, right? It was just like, it was just like, oh, this is a victory for Barack Obama, not just Senator from Illinois, but also friend of Denise, the gate agent at Delta. Like it was the weirdest sort of thing but it, that very quickly faded, right? We had the Tea Party backlash, which was not about taxes. It was not about government intrusion in the lives of people. Um, it was very much about race. People were walking around with signs of the president dressed like an African witch doctor with a bone through his nose, talking about how he wasn't born in America. And, of course, the current president, one of the primary leaders in that birther movement for a long time. Um, but what I think happened, and I wrote about this in my book, Dear White America, a couple years after, um, as the second term of Obama was beginning, was – you had four things happen. They all happen at once. And and it guaranteed the moment that we're in right now. I didn't necessarily see it as Trump, but I knew something like this would come. Yet so you had the election of the first black president, and not just a black president, a black president with a with an odd exotic name and an odd exotic background. Wait, he's from Hawaii. I think there are a lot of white folks who just think Hawaii is like a tourist destination. Like they're not <laughs> even clear that it's still a state, right? Um and oh, and he lived in Indonesia for a while, and you know, it's weird and so there's that. You also have the economic meltdown happening at that time. So now you've got white folks being confronted with economic insecurity in a way that they really hadn't been since the Great Depression. For black and brown folks, double-digit unemployment was just called Wednesday. But for white folks, that was like a 70-year-old thing they hadn't experienced. So now you've got black president challenging the sort of notion of what the leader should look like. You've got the economy melting down, challenging your your economic stability. You've got the uh, cultural change that had happened. Really, I mean, you know, those of us uh, who are a little older than than some of the younger folks 
can remember when, you know, MTV, for instance, which first of all, they used to play music videos, so Google that, kids. Um, but, but not only did they play music videos, they didn't play black music. There was a period in the early years of MTV when they just didn't play black artists, and they played a couple Michael Jackson videos, but that was it. And now... Popular culture is thoroughly multicultural, right? Uh, every genre of music has been inflected and influenced by hip hop. You have country artists and hip hop artists making records together and blows people's minds. But that's where we are. We're a thoroughly multicultural place. Well, for some people, the pace of that cultural change has been like discomforting for them and, and it sort of knocked them off their stride you know the the posters that your kids have in the room don't look like you and mm-hmm. and the and the movie stars that they follow and the athletes that they like and the pop culture stars so you've got people i mean i grew up in nashville in the 80s and 70s and 80s at a time when you know like ethnic food in the grocery the ethnic food aisle was like the pasta aisle, you know, in the 70s it was like chef boy rd and some and some noodles you know now you've got Thoroughly multicultural cuisine, thoroughly multicultural pop culture, thoroughly multicultural fashion. Um, And I think a lot of people weren't ready for that. So you've got, again, review, black president, economy melting down, massive cultural change. And then the fourth thing is the demographic shift, right, that the country is becoming less white, more brown. And so all those things at once create this perfect storm for white anxiety, because what we know about racism is that racism and racial resentment are not just about, like the old theory was, oh, it's about competing for limited resources. And so when you're competing for limited resources, you're more likely to have you know prejudice and scapegoat other people. That's true, but there's also a fear of losing status, right? And so if mm-hmm. you've been the dominant group, even if you're struggling, you can be a working class white person who's not doing real well economically, but you do know that historically you were always above those people. Like that was the floor beneath which you were not allowed to fall. And if you suddenly see the country becoming browner, your neighborhood becoming browner, the popular culture becoming browner, and the president's brown, oh my God, and the economy's melting down so you don't even know if you're going to have a job because things have globalized and all of that creates this this perfect storm of of white backlash and anxiety we saw it first in the tea party and then we see it now in trumpism and and so i think and none of that is the president none of that is obama's fault but it was very predictable that that was going to happen like this was not going to not only was it not going to end racism it was going to dredge up because of the other stuff that was happening it was going to dredge up a lot of those anxieties and fears and we're seeing that this is sort of the death rattle of of uh an older, you know, ancien regime. So right. So in just a, a minute or two that remains, uh, so what do we do with that? With the, In a sense, uh, I mean, it, it's true, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And yet this feels like something different than we have been contending yeah. with uh, in, 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 in the, the previous couple of decades. And what are what are the ways in which we need to address this differently well i just think now we now that the band-aid is ripped off you know so to speak um and and i think most people you know if you still if you still are saying that racism isn't a real problem in america now you're just not paying attention now there's just nothing i can do for you right at least before you had the plausible deniability of the dog whistle that's gone now so so what we have to do is we have to be as demonstrative and as deliberate in our anti-racism as other people are in their racism we have to be willing to make our politic as as intentionally anti-racist as they make their politic racist, um, which is to say, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna be out there fighting for healthcare, if I'm gonna be out there fighting for better schools, I need to be honest enough to say, you know, one of the reasons you don't have good healthcare right now, it, the research on this is very clear. One of the reasons that we don't have sort of. Um, you know, Scandinavian country style, universal health care, affordable access and universal access is precisely because, according to the research, 
a large number of white folks don't want black and brown folks to have it. They think they're going to abuse the program. So as a result, we'll end up not getting programs that we need just because we don't want them to have it. We need to be bold enough to say, do you realize like you the reason we can't have nice things you know, is because of racial inequity and the mentality that comes from that. That's why we can't have nice things. So if you wonder why your schools aren't functioning, that's why, because you cut budgets because it was those people's kids or the reason you don't have, you know, um, uh, better health care is because you didn't want those people to take advantage of taxpayers or whatever. And I think we've got to be as clear about that and make and, and make the point that racism and racial resentment are keeping us from being able to move forward. That doesn't just hurt black and brown people. That hurts white folks as well. And and unless our politicians are brave enough to do that, as opposed to dancing around race and talking about everything but race for fear of white backlash, what are you afraid of? They're already backlashing. I mean, it, hmm. it, it, you're not going to make them any angrier than they already are. Just tell the truth. And and perhaps we can get back on track. But I think that's going to take some some courage and some boldness that we usually haven't haven't seen. You know. Tim Wise speaks at Carthage College tonight in the Todd Weir Center, a talk titled Great White Hoax, Challenging Racism and Denial uh, in the Age of Trump. This is open to the public, uh, free admission, uh, but registration is appreciated. And uh, you can register uh, to attend tonight's event by going to carthage.edu and uh, click on the bridge. And the top story under news and events is the visit of Tim Wise, and uh, there is a link there where you can register uh, to attend tonight's uh, free presentation by Tim Wise. Tim Wise, uh, it was a real privilege to meet you today. Thank, Thank you. you so much for making uh, part, uh, uh, making time for this in a busy schedule. And uh, Dr. Uh, William Miller, Associate Provost for New Program Development and Professor of Sociology and Criminal Justice and Co-Director of the Equity and Inclusion Committee at Carthage. Thank you for uh, making uh, Tim Wise's visit to Carthage and to the Morning Show possible, and best wishes with the good work that you are continuing to do. Thank you so much. I'm Gregory Berg.